charge your electric car. I can't believe we forgot that. And anyway, it will help the plans if you said people are asking. So thank you very much. <laughs> I'm so happy that there are so many people here. So I'm just going to say again, two weeks from now, bring a friend for free. It's bring a friend for free day. So really, make a a party out of it. Bring a friend. We could say bring a friend for free or make it a 50% day by two for the price of one. That <laughs> twofer. It's like those. Uh, what do you call those? Groupons. We get a Groupon. Give you a coupon for. And let me not forget to say, because we were a little late on getting the uh, 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 advertisements out, communications, the word that over the over the uh, Labor Day weekend, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. There is the first ever three-day non-residential retreat at Spirit Rock. Every year there's a residential retreat up at the top of the hill on, um, uh, on the Labor Day weekend. It's been there forever. We are also going to have a, uh, a retreat for three days. And it's really going to be a retreat, unlike a workshop. There's going to be a lot of long periods of uh, sitting quietly, walking practice, yoga practice, and uh, with but the difference is that people are going to go home at night and come back in the morning. And we're doing it both because we have this big room and we can do a retreat for three days. We have a real retreat hall that's separate, not like the one down there. And we're also doing it because it's really in keeping with the ongoing teaching that we want to do about this is not separate from life practice. This is life practice. Uh, I, was, I was actually thinking about it a lot. In, a friend of mine has been taking a summer intensive at her yoga studio in Philadelphia. So she gets up every morning and she leaves home at uh, 5.30 and she's at the yoga studio at 6 and she does two hours with her, you know, there's a whole class of people who do two hours of intensive yoga practice. They do chanting, they do postures, they do sitting quietly, they do some more chanting, they do two hours of intense practice, and then she goes to work. And so that it's two hours of intense practice in the middle of a life. So this is sort of like that. This is um, eight hours, or 9.30 to 5.30, or 9.30 to 5 every day. So it's like eight hours of practice in the middle of a life, you take in your newspaper, you send your children to school, you come here, spend here all day, and then you go home, and you fix dinner, and you tuck your children in, and you feed your cat, and you do other... So you don't have to pack. You don't have to pack, you don't have to make arrangements for your cat. 
those are the things that make it easier. And the things that make it special, easier and harder, is that you do it in the middle of the rest of your life. So when you're here, it's beautiful because nobody bothers you, nobody phones, nobody anything. So you have all of that uh, support of the silence around you. And in this retreat, you have your life around you. So it's like advanced practice. But uh, I think it'll be great. And it's Saturday and Sunday and Monday. And it's myself and Larry Yang and Conda Mason. So we'll do all those stretching, sitting, walking, sitting, Dharma talk, sitting. A lot of practice in three days. And there is a bus going to come from the North Berkeley BART station. So if you live anywhere in the East Bay, you can take the train to the North Berkeley station and then take the bus here, which will take you back there. And uh, if you live in San Francisco, you can take the BART to the North Berkeley station, which I thought, first of all, would make it easier, and second of all, it's much more ecological to just bring one bus from North Berkeley back and forth than have dozens of people coming from all over the place. And I tried to get the bus to stop in the um, Bonaire shopping center so that the Marin people wouldn't have to come all the way out and back. And it's not a public parking, so that can't happen. But we do have that board that's online where you can look for rides. So we think that maybe people, as it gets nearer the time, we are near the time, Anybody has signed up for it already? A lot of people have signed up. Anybody here has signed up for those three days? Hey. <laughs> think if you signed up, we could have a, you know, anyway, think about it. I was thinking this morning about how easily my mind is cheered, how easily it's demoralized, and how really. We're not looking to have flat minds that don't get enthusiastic or disappointed, but minds that can really have a a, um, a malleability of uh, move to this to that. I I I, uh, I was thinking about how happy I was that uh, somebody in the next room at home this morning was watching the news, and by and large, so demoralizing. And then there was an interview with a woman who's on the U.S. Olympic team. Have you seen this? There's a woman who's an African-American woman from New Jersey who was born in New Jersey and her parents were born in New Jersey. And uh, she is Muslim. And she is a uh, uh, member of the Olympic team because she's a fencer. And she is fencing in a hijab with her fencing mask on over it. And they show some clips of her fencing, showed some clips of her being interviewed without the fencing costume on, but beautiful looking and uh, explaining that she was just brought up as a religious Muslim so that only your hands and your face stick out if you're a woman. She had a beautiful face sticking out of her beautiful clothing that she's being interviewed. I was interested to see that her face is really beautifully made up with eye makeup, so it doesn't have anything to do about not being beautiful or adorning yourself. Not 
having more than your face and your hands show. I thought it looked beautiful. I thought to myself, that's nice, in the middle of all this divisive rhetoric. Maybe the world is actually, I know the world is actually changing. I like to try to think more about that than how about it's not. So last week and today and next week and the next week when all I'll be here, I thought I'm going to keep talking about mindfulness. Uh, that's fundamentally not only what we practice here, but um, it's really, I think, the, the, uh, the core of the Eightfold Path. Uh, and we'll sit in a minute, but I thought I would... Uh, set the tone for it by reading you I feel a little silly about this all of a sudden this is the latest edition of Lion's Roar so you know that I write for Lion's Roar quite regularly but um, I wrote this (laughs) but it's good I read it, it just came in the mail and I read it this morning and I thought this is really good, I could paraphrase it but why should I paraphrase it? I already wrote it better than I could paraphrase it and I wrote it in response to the question that everybody was answering was, uh, you know, everything is mindful these days. Mindful has taken over the world. What's the difference between mindful parenting and mindful gardening and mindful listening and mindfulness as we study it here? Is it either or? What do you think about mindful or mindful? I teach mindfulness both as a valuable ego skill for daily life. It's good to be a mindful parent and a mindful... And as an integral part of the Buddha's Eightfold Path, I don't think about it as either or. I can't imagine any wholesome activity that wouldn't be enhanced by mindfulness. At the same time, I love teaching mindfulness as the central practice of the Buddhist Eightfold Path. Buddha's Eightfold Path to free the mind from all its habits of suffering. I love the line in the movie Kundun when the uh, person playing the young boy Buddha says, I am the cause, as the second noble truth, I am the cause of most of my suffering because of the habits of my own mind. I think that's brilliant. Can you imagine an eight-year-old saying that? It's very rare that a 40-year-old says that, you know, that... Most of my suffering is habits of my own mind. The Eightfold Path begins with ethics practice, uh, wise action, wise speech, wise livelihood, that are designed to inhibit the arising of impulses that lead to behavior that causes suffering if they remain unconscious. And the path ends with wise understanding and wise intention. The awareness of the fundamental truths that everyone suffers and that kindness is the redemptive response. The three middle components of the path, wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration, support and depend on each other. Let's imagine it this way. Mindfulness, the balanced, non-reactive recognition of moments of experience as they arise, is able to evaluate what's happening. Wise effort is a habit of choosing at every notable juncture a wholesome response. Think of concentration as a ballast for the mind, a steadying that protects it from being overwhelmed by experience. The Eightfold Path is a conclusion, the fourth noble truth, 
The Eightfold Path is the conclusion of the Buddha's Four Noble Truths, the summary of his liberating understanding. Life experience is challenging, he explained, because of its very nature of temporality. Circumstances keep changing and human beings are vulnerable to loss and disappointment. Suffering, he taught, is the imperative in the mind that things be different from how they are. The end of suffering, he promised, the absence of that imperative is possible. The Eightfold Path is his formula for cultivating a mind that is able, through wisdom and kindness, not to insist that things be different from how they are. has a little bit more, but that's the line I wanted to really bring up. It's the lack of imperative in the mind. It's the mind that has wisdom in it so that whatever is happening, whatever is happening, to have in back of what's happening, knowing what's happening, knowing how you feel about what's happening, and knowing whether it's changeable or not open to change. Everybody in a 12-step meeting every day who says, I'd like to have the, uh, the courage to change what I can change and... Uh, well, this, and this, which way, which and, and and the the wisdom to know the difference. I never remember whether courage and strength, the strength to change what I can change, the the serenity, to, the serenity to accept the things I can't change, and the wisdom to know the difference. I always know that they, well, they kind of all need everything, but. I forget how to put them in that order. But when you think about that, Reinhold Niebuhr wrote that a uh, hundred years ago. Uh, then it was called the Serenity Prayer, and it's now part of all 12-step meetings, I think, that it's like common sense. You, you can't really, things are the way they are. Some things you can change. Our politics are changing every day. The 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 The... National discourse is changing every day. And we contribute to it, so it, it, it is changing. A dire diagnosis for a disease that has no cure is something that you can't change. Uh, and to be able to say, this is beyond what I can change, this is what I've got. I wish I didn't, but I have it. And the And the... Wisdom to remember that that's true. The wisdom to be able to tell which is which. And really, that's what mindfulness allows us to do. This is what's happening. This is the truth. How do I feel about it? What can I do about it? And how would I do it if I could? And then the courage to do something about it. You know, that... uh, Sometimes people say every minute, you can, every second that you think about what can I do, what can I do, what can I do. Most of the time what you can do is notice it and figure it out. You, not every moment is doing. But in the moment that it actually is, in the moment that a moment arises, in an instance where a moment arises that, for instance, is unpleasant, uh, like uh, maybe I'm sitting here, and maybe I have a thought uh, that uh, maybe I, I remember something I heard on the news or read in the paper that alarmed me, 
that particular thought, and here it comes back, and the mind startles because it's an unpleasant thought. I have the ability, and it is doing something, to just let the startle be, not do anything about it, just sit, say, wow, startled by that. Taking a breath, that's doing something. And now the startle is disappearing. Uh, One of the best words I've read in all of the years that I've been reading about mindfulness, one of the best words I ever read about mindfulness is that it's not coercive. It doesn't push things around. Just look at that. Astonished. Oh, look at that. Startled. Okay. And then that passes. Not to get involved with fighting with things. Get out of my mind. Startle arose. Irritation arose. Okay. Just wait. And just wait. It passes. Everything is ephemeral. So I thought we would sit with uh, Ace. I forgot a few things. I'm sorry. You're back. How many people have I... We have to start all over again. I so wanted to say this. No, don't hide Brahmani. I love him. (laughs) If you have not ever been here before on a Wednesday morning when I'm here, please put your hand up or stand up or do something. Oh, Oh, stand up. That'll be easier. Stand up. Just for a second, honestly. Then you can sit down when you say, What's your name? And where do you live? So please come again. I'm happy that you're here. This is Tom. This is our class. Come again. Uh, Mike from San Francisco. And Mike, do you need a ride next week? <laughs> Maybe. Uh, if you want to, anybody here who wants a ride anywhere, San Francisco, Marin County, the East Bay, stay for a minute, San Francisco, Marin County, the East Bay at the end. Other people will find you, San Francisco, Marin County, the uh, East Bay. What's your name? Scott in Petaluma. Scott in Petaluma, there you go. You came the back way. It's beautiful. Nice drive. I'm from Denver. From Denver. Nice to have you. Are you on summer holiday? I'm visiting my family here. That's great. I'm Stafford. San Francisco. Thank you very much. I'm her mom. I'm married to you. Aha. I grew up there, so you probably heard that in my... Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you for being here. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for coming, Michael. There's a lot of San Francisco people. Hint, hint, hint. And uh, Mike from San Rafael. Mike from San Rafael. Lots of mics here, too. Lots of mics. It was a very popular, uh, it was the most popular boy's name in America 60 years ago. My eldest son, who was 60 years old, is named Michael because everybody was naming their children Michael. Um, Lindsay from Oakland. Lindsay, welcome. Jason. Andrew from Mill Valley. Andrew from Mill Valley. Thank you for being here. Don from Morro Bay. Morro Bay? That's way south, isn't it? Did you come up this morning? Last night. Oh, good. It's a long ride in the morning. <laughs> Thank you for being here. Patricia from Nevada, originally. Oh, yeah. Or 
from San Rafael. Florida. Welcome. My brother-in-law lives right in us, uh, just in Fort Lauderdale. My brother-in-law lives in Fort Lauderdale. Dana from Sausalito. Chicago. Are you on a holiday going through? Okay. Glad you're here. Okay. Thank you, Anne. Okay. Okay? Good. Thank you for reminding me. So we'll sit. I'd like us to sit. Um, I, I, I'd like, in the spirit of mindfulness, to suggest the whole of the four instructions in the sutra and the sermon on the four foundations of mindfulness. So I would like to tell you the four ways that the Buddha taught to pay attention. And uh, I could just give them, take one at a time, take a vote. There are four different things to pay attention to. I could tell you all four in advance and say you're on your own, or I could do one and another one five minutes later, and another one five minutes later, another one five. I see a lot of heads nodding. All those in favor of B. Okay. We're not going to take a vote on that. It'll be too close. B. Okay. This is the sole way, O oh friends, said the Buddha. It's not, we translated it more spaciously as this is a very good way, O oh friends, for the ending of grief and lamentation. for the liberation that comes from the four foundations of mindfulness. So it begins by saying the practitioner sits down. It actually, in, in, in reality, it says the practitioner sits down at the base of a tree. So we're not doing that, but we're sitting down. And sit in a way that's straight up, so that whether you're on a chair or on a floor, so that the breath goes in and out easily into your body without you having to work on it and leave the breath alone, let it arise and pass away. And say to yourself, from time to time, if it's helpful to you, breath in and breath out, or long breath and short breath. The Buddha recommended noticing to oneself and people talk about whether you should actually say the word in your mind or just notice or whether it's a technique. It is a technique. People often say, well, I, you know, I don't have to talk to myself, I know. But if you talk to yourself at least a little bit, it keeps the attention focused in the experience. So let's sit for a little bit more than five minutes, letting the attention rest easily in the coming and going of the breath as much as you can when you discover that the attention is no longer with the breath 
that it's paying attention primarily to some thought that isn't here. See if it can rest again in the experiences in the body that denote the breath. You could feel it in your shoulders rising and falling, in your chest widening and relaxing back, in your body pushing back into the chair and away. The breath is a lot of different body experiences. Pay attention to any or all of them for the next five minutes.
You may notice as you sit attentive to breath coming in and out of your body that sometimes you feel it in as localized a place as around your nostrils. Sometimes you feel it with all of your body as it seems to inflate and then deflate. It's the same breath all the time. It really has to do with the focus of your attention. You have a big wide attention you see a bigger locus of the breath. It's all fine. As you continue to sit around your breath, you probably feel other awarenesses, like whether or not your skin is cool or warm. 
Perhaps some sounds register. Certainly thoughts come and go. Trying to bring your attention primarily to the way the breath manifests coming in and out of your body is a way of really settling the mind down. The repetition of that as a single point of focus calms down the primacy of other thoughts so that the mind really gets to steady itself. The second foundation of mindfulness that everybody becomes aware of in addition to what's happening like the breath is in or out or rib cage is expanding and rib cage is relaxing back is a a flavor of um, uh, feeling that with every event that happens The Buddha said events are either pleasant or unpleasant. Sometimes they're a little pleasant and a little unpleasant or a lot pleasant, a lot unpleasant. Sometimes he said they're neutral. It's harder to realize a neutral moment, I think, because they don't call out for your attention so much. But I'd like to suggest that you add that awareness of pleasure, pleasant or unpleasant, periodically as you pay attention to what's happening. So the breath is in and out, in and out. Every once in a while, think to yourself, is this pleasant, unpleasant? It's not to do something about it. It's ultimately to notice that things are pleasant or unpleasant, and that for the most part, if they're not terribly pleasant or unpleasant, they're just what they are, and you can be with it. So it establishes a certain amount of calm and steadiness in the mind.
with the awareness of the breath still continuing because it's always there right behind any other awareness that may arise along with pleasant and unpleasant. See if we can begin to be aware of what's the climate of the mind. I think to myself in terms of how it's described in the sutta, mind full of peacefulness, mind empty of peacefulness, mind full of um, desire, mind without desire. In the sutta, it's listed quite dispassionately. It's either this or that, or maybe it's not so obvious. Um, Mind at ease, mind tense, mind full of thoughts, mind empty of thoughts. It's presented without bias. It's just whatever it is. And it's awareness of it that makes the difference.
the fourth foundation of mindfulness, the fourth instruction for what to pay attention to in addition to the physical body and its changes as breath goes in and out, in addition to pleasant and unpleasant and even neutral, and in addition to the climate of the mind, content of mind. The fourth foundation is uh, more an overview understanding, really understanding what, what are the ways that truths about how the mind works. I think that the one that's most obvious for me, and I guess for all of us, is that uh, things keep changing. Nothing stays the same. This becomes this becomes this. In fact, one of my teachers would have said that's not true. Nothing becomes something else. Something happens and then it disappears and something else happens and then it disappears and something else arises and disappears. I think is the meaning of form is emptiness and emptiness is form which otherwise doesn't sound like it makes sense I think the other thing that becomes easy to see is that when the mind is uh, filled with uh, what the texts call unwholesome states like worry or anger or impatience then the mind and the body feel tense and uncomfortable and when the mind is filled with pleasant states like well-wishing and loving-kindness and generosity and compassion, then the mind feels good and the body feels good. I suppose that's why we leave the end of our sitting to mention people who are in some delicate place either uh, particularly pleased and happy with good fortune or particularly struggling with difficult times because we can hold them with as warm and as kind a heart in both cases when the mind is settled. I'm thinking about that uh, young fencer who's going to Rio for the games and I'm hoping she does well and stays healthy. Who are you thinking about this morning? I'm thinking about my friend Cheryl who often comes here, has come here on Wednesday mornings and who is starting chemotherapy next week and does not have a very good problem.
water damage, but she wants to find someplace else to live for a while. suffering with serious health issues and um, just holding on.
May this become the kind of world of kindness where through the travails of life that come to everyone, there are those who care for them and care about them and stay with them through that, these difficult times. May all human beings accompany each other with love. I always think, and I probably mostly always say, that that last five minutes seems to me the lesson of the whole entire class. That uh, the fact that uh, I was thinking as, as somebody shared, I don't even know who, but it could have been anybody shared, and I thought to myself, that feeling that I have, that I hope things work out well for that person, that as we sit, don't you have a feeling of, oh, I hope it goes all right. And we don't know who said it. We don't know the person they said it about. Uh, I, I, I was thinking, uh, the hiker that's lost, you know, that... Uh, all of us have been in a position of waiting for the news about when somebody will live or not live and in between. And we hope so much that they're going to be all right. We've hoped that somewhere, in some circumstance, some infant is about to get born and it's a distressed birth and everybody who's waiting is waiting to know. I once knew a man in a prayer group, actually, 
where people were going around and saying what they had been praying for in the quiet time that we had together. And as we went around, everybody said, and then he said, just to make sure that he made himself clear, he said, I don't pray. He said, but I hope. And I, I have thought about that so much, you know. I think prayer, prayer is a fancy word for hope. You know, it's a, it's a particular word that gets difficult for people for whom it becomes a philosophical thing, to whom and to what, and do you really think, and by what agency, and all that. But everybody knows about hope. Everybody hopes. Unless we're so depressed or something. But hope is a thing that people get. There's nobody in this room that doesn't get the word hope. And the other word I was thinking, just after that, this just all happened in the last five minutes. I was thinking, everybody... Everybody... uh, It isn't regrets. Everybody... Regret is not the word I'm looking for. Um, It's not mourn exactly, but it's like mourn. Um, What's the word that I'm really thinking of? Hmm? Grieve. Grieve. Everybody grieves. Thank you. That was the word I was looking for. I was thinking of the word bereaved. Everybody knows what it means when you say so-and-so is feeling bereaved. You know? Could feel bereaved. Usually we mean it when someone has died. But really when a, a, a relationship has died, someone that you've been a lifelong companion to and suddenly for some reason they absent themselves to you I have two people in my large extended family with adult children who have disowned them for various reasons in, in, in my understanding reasons of their own psyche not because they were in fact actually Maltreated, who knows really, but i I know the parents in both cases, and they are eternally bereaved because these people are still alive in the sense of living on this earth, but not connected to them, and they're their kin, and there's no way to how many people here know people for whom somebody has alienation of affection that's what it's called alien look how many people have that for reasons that you can't tell. But it's a really an agonizing, it's an agonizing kind of a thing. So, I, you know, I, I think that those are particularly human qualities to hope and to feel bereaved. I don't know that it's fair to say that they're distinctly human qualities. Maybe, you know, we, we know that animals feel bad when their person is gone. Uh, I... Uh, I know people who are rushing to get back from holiday because they say my cat doesn't eat when I'm not there. But <laughs> uh, I find that very touching. I'm sure it's true. Or, uh, but I don't know about, uh, and I don't know how that works, but people for whom there's a hole in the world. Some, people have said this to me so many times when someone actually dies. They're not there. 
anyway, they've died. The person says to me, there's a hole in the world, you know, that where they're supposed to be. When I open the door, they're supposed to be there. When I go into the next room, how many people know that feeling? They're supposed to be there and they're not there. It's a really, takes a long time to get used to the fact that they're not honestly there. Somebody told me recently that she got up in the night and uh, her, uh, her partner died actually a year ago now she said, but she realized she woke up in the night and she wasn't quite awake and she was reaching out in the bed. And so it's doubly startling to find he's not there and she had forgotten for a moment that he's not there. You know, that the people live on in our world. So I think that we're actually very tender-hearted. And I, I think that, that on that depends the fact that I think that we are wired for compassion, that we care deeply. I think it's a human trait unless we have peculiar neurology. I brought... uh, uh, Oh, I didn't bring the other book. I I brought two books, but the one I... uh, I sent it off to a friend yesterday. Is why I don't have it anymore. I just read a book that somebody sent to me called Bettyville. Anybody saw Bettyville or read it? Touching as anything. Did you love it? Uh, you also. I think everybody will, not just older folk. Bettyville is a story about a man who's uh, grown up, who was born in Missouri and grew up there, and uh, the only child of a, a couple in Missouri. And as an adult, he lives his entire life on the East Coast in New York, where he's a an editor of books of some note with big publishing companies. And he goes back to live with his mother when she's aged because she doesn't want to leave her home and he doesn't want her to have to leave her home with all her stuff in it. And it's a beautifully written memoir of his life together with his old, old mother where sometimes you laugh out loud and I think to myself... I hope I'm not doing this. I hope I'm not going to do this. Really, I'm not, I hope I don't do this. <laughs> you know, keeping asking the same question. So what's the capital of... Uh, why did she keep asking him? What's the capital of Delaware or Rhode Island or something or other? I don't know, but she keeps asking the same questions over and over again. And being difficult... And also being vulnerable and him continuing to be touched. And and woven in with it is his personal memoir, not only of growing up with her, but of coming out as a gay man in the e- era where it was uh, not only hard to come out, but harder in the Midwest, which is pretty well up to now almost. And um, how his own insides were changed by that. And his parents... Tremendous difficulty with recognizing what he was, who he is, but it's ve- and it's very, very touching. What did I not say about it, Nancy? No, I think you got it. I got it. Okay, but I, I read it and I think you know, people are so vulnerable. You know, you want to not say another word to anybody unless you're sure that you've vetted it in some way in your mind. You say. You say one painful thing 
and it roots itself in that person's mind forever and ever. Remember that somebody in the fourth grade said some particularly bad thing to him. It stays there forever. How many people remember some particularly bad thing that happened to them when they were in grade school? Some teacher, look at that, look at that. Really, all of us, um, somehow, especially maybe when we're young, but anytime, something says and it engraves itself in our, in our mind, in our brain, and we can't forget it. I read a book also, I'm reading a book called um, Love and Other Ways of Dying by Michael Paterniti, who I had not, re- not read before. But I bought it in an airport bookstore. I totally am vulnerable to airport bookstores. <laughs> you go in an airport bookstore and you walk by it. I have my Kindle in my purse. I have a million books in my Kindle not yet read. But you go through and it's such a beautiful display. You see all this stuff and you say, oh, look at this. And our, our salespersons recommend this book and it's 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 really and it's uh, different people say this is devastating and helpful. It is devastating, <laughs> and you have to get over it. But uh, this, and uh, it's, it says the size of this author's curiosity is matched only by the size of his heart, and it's killer to read because it's true. But anyway, it's wonderful. Uh, and he talks about in the introduction. He talks about. Uh, that uh, uh, he and his he and his brother, when he grew up, had uh, the, you know remember those little cars that boys used to play with matchbox matchbox cars, and he said we played constantly hours and days and months on end with cars colliding, and planes are crashing, and uh, a giant kicks down the north sector of the town. Police and fire come out to repair the damage. Crunching. And when we got television in our house, the evening news got into our games. An evil group known as Black September. There's a guy named Brezhnev who's a bad guy. We know that. There's a matchbox that can fly, driven by a great man named Muhammad Ali. Every moment is we wait expectantly for another hero. Ours is a Machiavellian universe in which light eventually triumphs over darkness and angels over devils. Uh, of course, our parents are forbidden to enter our play because we don't have to want to explain to them what we're doing. And he goes back to say that if you go, you know, at some point they stopped playing because they got it that life is not a game and they grew up and they had larger things that they needed to do. But he said when he goes back and he looks at it, he remembers the, not only the games of his life, but other things that came up in his life and provokes up old memories like when I asked you about, do you remember anything that happened in grade school that wrote in your mind? And he said this is why he put together all these stories. He said these are the stories, he, these are 15 stories that he's written in his life. He said... Uh, Themes that keep coming up. He said, well, here's the thing. I keep bringing up these themes in my different essays. He's a journalist who's an, also an essayist and very good writer. He said, what, the reason I'm doing it, he said, no matter how 
much comes up and how difficult it is or how good, we are beholden not to look away from the things we fear or revere. And I started to underline it because I think that that's the thing about mindfulness. I've probably said here so many times, we could have as the theme, may I meet this moment fully, may I meet it as a friend. May I meet this moment fully when I meet it as a friend. One of the things I discovered soon after I began mindfulness practice seriously and did a lot of retreat practice, actually, not very long periods because I always had a family to go back to, but periodic, 10 days, 2 weeks, 10 days, 2 weeks, a couple of three times a year for many years. Not very much, not longer ones because I couldn't do it in the middle of my life. But one of the things is I started noticing that as I had a period of time for my mind to be quiet as my body was quiet, different stories would come up. I began to sort of anthropomorphize the whole thing, say to myself, I think that I have like a watch person in my body or in my mind, and it says, we're not going to let this thought come up or this idea or this memory because it's going to kick up too much dust. And Sylvia is too busy these days. She's taking a licensing exam. She's having another baby. She's raising up this. She's doing that. Let's not bother her with this thought. And then I go on retreat and I sit down and that same watch person says, huh, I see you have a little free time up there. Why don't we just chew over this story a little bit and think about that? Anybody ever notice that? You go on retreat, you feel good, everything's fine, and all of a sudden, here comes episode two of something or other. That we are beholden not to look away from the things we fear or revere. The more we examine the grooves and the scars of life, the deeper we go in our forensic investigations by trying to name things that appear before us, the more free and complete we become, the more capable of identification and compassion and opposition. But it's not just that. The more willing we are to suffer pain and loss and even great throes of happiness to live fully inside these big emotions. That's what I think we are doing. We are not teaching ourselves to not have emotions. We're teaching when people... uh, I I actually worried when I started to practice, this is now 40 years ago, unbelievable. 39, but next year 40, so when you get close, you can edge it up a little bit. Um, 40 years. And in the beginning, I thought I was going to come out flat. You know, here comes Sylvia, she meditates. It's not true. You come. You don't come out flat. You come out wider, if anything, in terms of range of motion. That's a good term, you know, like when you go to a physical therapy because you don't have good range of motion and then ultimately you have range of motion. I think I have bigger range of motion in my mind than I did before. I think I can stand it more to go here with really be ecstatic and go here and really feel bereft. Maybe because I, you know, I, I, this is guessing, but it makes a lot of sense. Maybe it's because I really feel like everything passes so it doesn't have to frighten you so much. 
I'm totally bereft, which is an agonizing feeling, there's something where the agonizing is not going to be forever. And I know that on some level. And when I'm really excited about something or happy about it, I'm really uh, glad to really appreciate it because it won't last. When I first went on retreat, my, I, I thought to myself, this was kind of a little bit sassy. I never said it to anybody, so I guess it doesn't count for sassy. I just thought it. Uh, I'd, I'd go on retreat. My, Jack Cornfield was one of the teachers on my first retreat, and I was struggling a lot. It was hot. I had a headache. I didn't know what I was doing. And I'd go see him for a one-on-one meeting, which you do when you're on retreat. And I'd say, this is horrible. I'm really so uncomfortable. Whatever I said. And he said, it'll pass. And then I came back two days later. I said, you know, I feel good. My headache went away. I feel really, I'm so moved by the scenery around here. There are millions of birds. My heart is really happy. He said, it'll pass. (laughs) And I I thought to myself, there's nothing that these people say, except maybe they have like a little recording machine in there. They just push a button and it says it'll pass. But the thing is, it will pass. Uh, That's the thing. Uh, And much sooner than you think... uh, no, not much sooner than you think, because who thinks about how fast is this going to be? In retrospect, I keep on thinking, I'm 80 years old. How did I get here? I mean, I, yesterday, I was young. Yesterday, I got married. I can tell you practically what everybody said on the day my first child was born. That's 60 years ago. How could, you know... Uh, and a lot of things must have happened in between. My parents died. This happened. That happened. And all of a sudden, I'm here. And on any of those things, if I took a quiz, I could say when my parents died, I could say what happened on those days, when my other children died, what all my phone numbers were. I even, the other day, remembered my phone number when I grew up in grade school in Brooklyn. You know, we had phone numbers before they had numbers. We didn't have, um, we didn't have 10 numbers because we didn't have area codes. And we didn't have, uh, we had five numbers and one, what did they call it, exchange. Exchange. My exchange was Nightingale. Isn't that nice? I said, what's your phone number? Nightingale 5, 4019. That's much nicer than 415, that has no, um, no class, you know. (laughs) It's a lot of words. But really, to be able after after I began to know mindfulness pretty well and know about the teachings and how it works, I began to really I realized that that particular injunction about everything passes is actually true, and it not only is the thing that the Buddha is said to have said as is next to the last sentence before he died. You think so? Why is that important to know? Because it makes, uh, first of all, it makes life bearable, and uh, also you don't get so attached to it. And in some way, I don't know that you don't have to mourn. You do have to mourn because we're made out of this protoplasm that mourns and yearns. But I, I think maybe it's a step to 
realizing that everybody does it. This is part of it, what everybody does. It's, it's just the truth of how things are. I remember saying to my... Uh, I just wrote a blog. Did I tell you that earlier? I have a blog, you know, that, uh, that you can look up on sylviaborstein.com. I don't write it every day. But uh, I, I did write one yesterday, and it's got a lot of people responding to it. I think because they have good pictures. My daughter illustrates them. And uh, I told the story about my mother-in-law having said when I was a very young, newlywed person, she would say things, uh, one turn around in your shoes. She'd say it in Yiddish, but it's an expression. It means one turn around in your shoes and it's all over. I thought to myself, uh, that's really a thing that old people say. And then I got old, and I realized it is a thing that old people say, matter of fact, because actually it's true. (laughs) And um, I remembered talking to my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, uh, after I'd been practicing for some time. Joseph Goldstein and Jack Kornfield and Sharon Salzberg are my principal teachers. And I remember talking to Joseph, and I was on retreat, um, and it was the end of the summer, And I was saying, you know, I walk out in the garden and I see the roses are all turning brown around the edges and they're dying. And It's so sad. And he said, it's not sad, Sylvia. It's, you know, it's just true. You know, everything that arises passes away, all of that. He said, it's not sad, it's just true. And I was a very dutiful student. I said, thank you very much. I went out. (laughs) I, you know, I actually never contradicted anybody. I only think I'm sassy in my mind. I'm, com- I'm completely well behaved. You probably knew that. Anyway, but I thought to myself, it's not sad. It's poignant. It's poignant, you know. You look at a newborn baby and, you know, between now and... Oh, there used to be a thing. In, uh, it's probably... Maybe it's in more than one place. In the Rafael Convalescent Hospital on um, North San Pedro Road, where my father spent the last few weeks of his life when I couldn't care for him anymore, they had a big uh, portrait up over the nurse's station of uh, a beautiful young woman in in uh, one of those high-neck blouses that people wore in the kind of Victorian era with a cameo over here. Remember when people wore cameos? Beautiful woman. And uh, I'd walked down the hall that was full of elderly people, often very physically compromised, slumping over in wheelchairs. And it had some very, um, I don't know, uh, a whole name of this portrait under it says something like Elizabeth Washington, let's just say. And uh, I, I would look around and I would think, I wonder if one of these people slumping in a wheelchair here is Elizabeth Washington in a later version, you know, that it's a portrait of somebody, maybe somebody there currently, maybe somebody who had already died. But I thought to myself, that's how it all is. We go through this brown, you know, brown around the edges of the roses means they're on their way out. And wrinkles around the edges of our face are different from when we're born. And um, 
It's not that they're not lovely in their own way. But the coming and goingness, I think, is what uh, is affecting. Because if I look at coming and goingness, I think to myself of all the people who were affected by the coming and goingness. How, and I think that there's something that, that, that comes in all of us. When, when the turkeys go by outside with baby turkeys, we all feel good, you know? We, you know, whatever thoughts we have, the turkeys and vegetarians and all, whatever. But turkeys with baby turkeys make you feel good. And the deer go by with baby deer. And you feel good. It's like, it's like a, a, a vote for the future when you see baby deer. Are people interested in um, Kate Middleton? Every other day, People Magazine says she's having another baby. People, but I, don't th- I think she has two. I think that's what it is. But that, that headline is really exciting to people. That thought about uh, the, con- the contingent, the, the, the ephemeral quality of life experience, the... Um, uh, uh, contingent quality of life experience. Not something becomes this or morphs into it, but because of this, this, because of this, this. There were three things that the Buddha said that were important for a person to realize and that would give you ease of mind and heart and that mindfulness practice was a way to get there. And the first of those things is uh, uh, the uh, emptiness, the ephemeral quality, anicca, means everything is transient. There's nothing that stays. Actually, in its arising is the beginning of the end. When a wave starts happening, it means that the end of the wave will happen and it will disappear. When the breath comes in, that breath is over. It's not meant to be lugubrious or... But we have a certain number of breaths, and when they stop coming in, we won't be here anymore. But you don't think about that. I mean, I, I, uh, I'm not, you know, not usually. The only times I've thought about it is when I've been with people who are at the very end and having trouble dying. And then I hope that they won't have so many more because, because of their discomfort. The people who... Uh, begin to take care of or visit people who are at the end I think are best served for themselves and best serving to the people that they're with if they're not frightened by what's going on you know that if, you, if they're alright with it in some way this is what's supposed to happen uh, doesn't mean it's not poignant especially if it's somebody that you loved a lot. Complex. Remember last week I gave that... Who has the paper that I gave out last week? I said, bring the paper. Who didn't bring the paper that I gave out last week? That's all right if you didn't bring the paper. I just had a few more things to say about the paper. And it doesn't matter if you have the paper. Here's a paper. It's a paper that I wrote as an outline probably 25 years ago. In which I was saying, it's a paper on how mindfulness works. Because I just said that like three minutes ago, I said mindfulness is the answer. 
when the Buddha said at the beginning of the mindfulness uh, sutta, this is the sole way of monks for the ending of grief and lamentation. So I think there are so many problems with the translations into modern English. I don't think it's the sole way. I don't know. But it actually said it's the sole way. Jack Cornfield likes to translate it as this is a very good way. Buddha says this is the sole way, O monks. And we say this is a very good way, O friends, because it's different. And uh, I don't know that it's the ending of grief uh, because I think we feel grieved when we're bereft. When something we really, really, really hope for doesn't thrive or survive. Mothers who give birth to stillborn children are bereft beyond words. That's the hardest thing to be a, a, a to have that happen and to be a, a nurse or a physician and deliver a baby that doesn't live. It's very, very hard. But to know that whatever is happening is what's happening now and then other things happen. But how does it work that saying this is what's true, let's see what happens next, how does that work to really create these kinds of understandings. That book, um, that excerpt that I... I'm going to read it one more time just because I like it so much. Here he's saying that if you look at every single thing that comes up out of the memory, the grooves and scars of life, the deeper we go into our forensic investigations by trying to name the thing that appears before us, the more free and complete we become. I, went, I once had a teacher named Ira Progoff. Does anybody remember Ira Progoff? Remember Ira Progoff? Ira Progoff was a Jungian analyst in New York who uh, had a, a, worked on and developed a technique for having people write a personal journal about their life. Do you remember that? And uh, actually, I, I not only studied with him, I taught it for a number of years. And, it was, and I, have, I have a lot of respect for it. Everybody got a great uh, loose-leaf notebook, and it was divided. You know how you have spacers in the loose-leaf notebook? You have algebra and French and social studies... This was uh, slices, uh, uh, ways that you could examine your life, like chapters of my life or religious experiences or something else, dreams. But they were ways of looking at your life through different windows of a prism. Huh. We could do... Nah, nah, don't get excited. Would you like some time, not today? Would it appeal to you sometime if we took 15 minutes and did exercise one of that? It's interesting. Is that interesting? Anybody thinks that's a terrible idea? Because I don't want to spring that on you if you think it. Maybe we'll do it next time because it's very interesting. 
But, pre- but the image, the reason I remembered that while I was reading this book is what he said about his life and everybody's life. He said, as I did this, because it's really like digging around in your life. It's like an archaeologist. It's like leaving no stone unturned. And he said, I would like my life to be like the sand, the memories of my life. He said, I'd like them to be like the sand in a good sandbox. Like there's some good sandboxes that are good, and there's some sandboxes that are not so good. What's a not so good sandbox? Hmm? The cat pooped in it. <laughs> what? What else? You were nodding. Yeah. <laughs> A good sandbox. Anybody else have a good idea about what, another good idea about a good sandbox? A good sandbox is not lumpy. You know, it's not clumped up. Good sandbox, when you put your hands in it, it and you bring it up, the sand runs through your fingers. If you have a dump truck and you put sand in it, it dumps out of the dump truck. A good sandbox, he said, the, the thoughts of your life and the memories of your life should go through your fingers like sand in a good sandbox. I like that a lot. It's probably 40 years ago that I learned that, but it stayed in my mind. It's a way of uh, knowing your life and being able to say, that happened. Let's see what happened next and next. So to be able to really look at your life. Later on, when I became a... um, well, I, I, I was a psychotherapist. I am one. I was one before I was uh, introduced to mindfulness practice. And people asked for many years, I was being interviewed about how is being a meditation teacher, a Dharma teacher, different from being a psychotherapist. So I said, well, teaching people Dharma is, uh, and Dharma techniques like mindfulness is actually another form of... Uh, examination of the mind and how it works and you find the stories that are frightening to you and the stories that are hidden and the stories that recur and then you begin to be able to see it's because I have this recurring story that I always make that choice that doesn't turn out to be so good for me and that the more that you shine light on it the more you can change I noticed that when I made this um, list 40 years ago or whenever I met it, about how mindfulness actually works. In, uh, and I was talking about the fact that my teachers describe three types of results from mindfulness, and they, they say of them as uh, insights that are on the physical level, insights on the psychological level, and insights on the spiritual level. And it always sounded to me like Good, pretty good, really good. And that the the spiritual ones are the ones you wanted and that the other ones were sort of just beginning, low-level, um, pre-K. What you really wanted was the spiritual insights. But I, over the years, A, I have come to feel that they are all inextricably linked with each other, and B, uh, how could an insight that clarified for you some way that you are not seeing clearly about yourself that you could now make better decisions about because you see clearly not be useful and say, oh, this is 
minimal useful this is liberating. I think they're all liberating. So I was thinking particularly over the week, um, I was thinking if I could mention how exactly uh, mindful attention might uh, clarify physical habits. I was thinking of the practice of mindful eating. We sometimes have workshops here on that. But I was thinking about on, a, on mindfulness retreats. When I am sitting on retreat, I notice that I'm full before I might otherwise notice because I'm having a good time and food is very good. Eating, 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 eating. And maybe I pass the time where I said, full, don't need any more, but you keep on eating. Anybody ever notice that you keep on eating? <laughs> also notice that uh, I'm disappointed when I notice that I'm full. Because then I realize, ah, I'm full. Which means, first of all, I could stop. And second of all, I'm not enjoying it as much as I did when I was hungry. So it's like a peculiar thing to notice the passing away of appetite. You say, oh, great, I was good appetite. Beautiful food here. But the enjoyment has to do with having a good appetite and beautiful food. You don't longer have a good appetite. It's not so enjoyable. You say, phooey. I wish I was still hungry because this is good. Then you start thinking, well, I wonder if I could put some away in a dish, take it to my room. <laughs> but away when, when we're not in touch with ourselves. There used to be an ad for some bromide where somebody's opening a medicine cabinet in their bathroom and saying, I can't believe I ate the whole thing. But it was an ad for Pepto-Bismol or something, but... But we, we override our body. Or we say, I went on, on holiday and I slept. You know, I, I slept eight hours every night. And what's more, I took a nap every afternoon. It was great. So you could learn from that that maybe in the rest of your life, you're not taking enough care of yourself and going to sleep. Um, you know, we stay up to watch TV or do whatever. In, a, in another society, you sleep when it gets dark. When you... But when we we are using our clock rather than our body, people who discover that they uh, in that book I read Bettyville, one of that person's discovery is not only was it hard for him to come out as gay, but to cut. Uh, really what it is is not not so much the gayness but the fact that he felt like not a good person because of it and um, how much he used drugs as a means of covering up his feelings and how much his decision to stop using the drugs was based on his awareness I have to stop using in order to have a clear view of my life in order to really see what's going on so I, I really wanted to say that and go back and look at this list and say that because awareness about your physical body is huge. Also, uh, people sometimes think, oh, you were a yoga teacher before you were a mindfulness teacher, weren't you? I was. But I think that yoga, Hatha yoga is a mindfulness practice and that I, I purposely do. I'm not just waving around. <laughs> I'm purposely doing that. Uh, my friend Brahmani, who is a yoga teacher, 
and I were talking just briefly. This is this is a straw poll. If there was were if there were an opportunity to come an hour early before Wednesday class and do morning yoga in this room for three quarters of an hour or something before class, who would come? All right, about 20 people, that's interesting. Okay, things, the wheels go very slowly here, so don't, don't come next week expecting, but... The, the second paragraph here was about uh, the fact that some of those stories that come up, this is one small part of the fact that when you slow down and let your mind just be resting, not only says, here are some stories you haven't taken care of, but some of the stories that you haven't taken care of or haven't looked at, here are some of the things that we've been saving for you, Sylvia. I used to really imagine... I'd go on retreat and I'd think to myself, this is exactly like a space mountain in, uh, in uh, uh, Disneyland. How many people have ridden on space mountain in Disneyland? So what is the defining uh, description of space mountain? It's fast. It's dark in there. You cannot see anything. It's a roller coaster in the dark. So you don't know what's going to happen next, which is a big problem. You know, on a regular roller coaster, you see, and you brace yourself for where you are going. In Space Mountain, you don't know where you're going. So it's suddenly, but I mean, you know that 90 seconds later, you're going to get out. So So you're all right. How many people have done it? Yeah, that's scary, isn't it? Yeah. Did you go back and do it again? Yeah, yeah. Because uh, you couldn't get out in 90 seconds. But I used to think that going on retreat was like Space Mountain because you don't know as the mind that's the uh, router of stories is going through the files to say, all right, Sylvia seems to have a little time on her hands and she's pretty relaxed. We could work on this or that. You don't know what reference file is going to come up for you to look at. And uh, not only I noticed it, but people that I was working with in therapy would notice it. And I would talk with them about that the instruction, both in therapy and in uh, meditation practice, is don't duck. You know, don't duck. If you're in therapy and you have some old... Uh, image or story that you've been keeping down for many, many, however long. And here it is. I, I always take that as a sign of now is a good time to look at it because the energy that you're using to keep it hidden, whether it's something that you did that you don't want to look at or something that you feel guilt about that you don't want to feel or something that you're afraid to know that's a memory from the past, that all of those things take up a certain amount of energy to be minding them unless you've somehow looked at them in the light and said, and been able to say in one way or another, this is what happened. Either this happened to me, uh, but it's not happening now, which is really the, the central thing in uh, PTSD. It did happen, this 
but it's not happening now. And for the mind to somehow work that over. Or I did do that, but I wouldn't do it now. I'm sorry about it, but I wouldn't do it now. Or my mother did do that, or my father did do it, or somebody did do that to me. But they're not doing it now, and here I am as an adult, and I have the choice of being able to have compassion for myself that it happened, and for them that they did it, and for the world that this is a world where that happens, and compassion for myself for not having the courage or the wherewithal to look at it before, but also the strength to forgive myself and everybody else. And then maybe it does become like sand in a sandbox. But you have to first see it. I remember telling that to people, just don't duck. Because it's, it's come up for some reason. So sometimes when I'm teaching and people have become uh, knowledgeable about like metta, uh, uh, wishing well for yourself and blessing yourself, and then they say, oh, but my, that story came up. I could start to do metta for the story for myself. And it's a, very, it's a complex answer because one could do metta in the sense of reciting really over and over, kind of compulsively, may I be peaceful, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I be happy. And then the thought will go away, really. But it didn't really go away. It just got submerged because your mind got more and more concentrated. The question is, when are you ready to be able to say, okay, I see you, and never mind the story, let's feel the feeling of the story. That's what I... Okay. And I'm still here. And that was then, and now was now. And sometimes when you think of something, the mind cringes, and you say, relax. I've been so impressed. One of the contemporary Dharma teachers whose work I've been following a lot, has as his principal um, instruction, he says, relax. Whatever happens, relax. Jealousy arises in your mind, relax. And feel it. It's just a feeling. It goes through you or anything that, relax, and then look at it. Relax, and then look at it. It's not don't feel it. In fact, feel it, and it goes through. It's just a feeling. I remember my, my, my friend and my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, telling some long story that ends up with his big realization. That's just a thought. It's just a thought, and it's just a feeling. It's not happening now. Let's see what happens next. That's got to be my all-time current favorite phrase from, from, not all time, but current favorite phrase from Gil Fransdahl. This is what's happening now. Let's see what happens next. I find that so soothing, the fact that there's a next. What's that, whatever, you know, the next might be worse, but who knows? But there's going to be a next. You know, I'm not going to be stuck with this cringe forever. Let's see what happens next. I really have been thinking that the whole of my practice these days is uh, not let's see what happens next, but saying to myself, uh, you know, don't run away with this, or don't be so sure, or let's just see. You know, something will happen. 
It's something really minor. I'm, I'm trying to, in other words, have an ongoing practice of uh, I have had in my life um, a mind that easily worries. Those of you who know me before today know that. You know, given some thought, I could really worry. And so something will happen. I, uh, I'm looking around for my passport um, because I'm, I went to Mexico last week. And uh, it wasn't where I thought it would be. And I, the thought began, uh-oh, don't have a passport, you can't get uh, Don't get excited. Let's see what happens next. I'm just trying to take good care of my mind all day. I consider that my meditation, keeping my mind in a thoughtful, awake, relaxed way. Relaxed. And then if I have to think about it, I said, look, either you have the passport or you don't. And then either you'll find it or you don't. If you have it, you'll probably find it. If you don't have it, then you probably lost it. You can probably get a provisional by going somewhere or other and say, I'm just going to Tecate and I'm just going over the border. And by the time I go through all of that, you find the passport. But what I am trying to do is not is to have a passport of keeping a fairly mellow mind. You come start to come here. There's a little bit of traffic. You say, oh, wouldn't want to be late. I wouldn't want to be late, but I might be. It's not the end of the world. I've been really aware, and I, I see that we're going to run out of time, and I wanted a little bit more time to explicate the second part of those instructions about is it pleasant or unpleasant. Remember, when you did that, is it pleasant or unpleasant, what happened? Did you notice? What did you notice? For me, I noticed there was a lot, mainly unpleasant, unfortunately. Mainly unpleasant. From body feelings or from thoughts? Thoughts. Thoughts. You know, I'm hopeful that if that were, first of all, I'm sorry. Then second of all, I'm hopeful that while you're sitting and you have a thought and it's unpleasant, do you notice that your body cringes like a little bit like that? That just to say, oh, and relax. It's, you know, it's not that the situation that you're thinking about is going to change from that. But you, you spare yourself tension in the mind. You'll feel a little better. If there's some solution that you can think of, you'll think about it easier that way. Not to say that it doesn't count that you have stuff on your mind that's making you tense. But at least you don't have to like hurt your body with it. There's a lot of um, more and more of the mindfulness research is saying uh, that we we make ourselves tense too much. We So I'm trying not to. Partly because I think it's not good for me, it doesn't feel good. And partly because I think I'll find the solution sooner if I don't let myself get carried away. When I find some when th- something's unpleasant or I hear something, well, on the news you can do that now where Somebody tells some, you hear that somebody says that one of the candidates has said or done something that's upsetting to you for some reason. And the mind says, ah. And then it immediately makes the end of the world is coming. You know, that really, if this happens and that happens, and if this election and that election, wait, wait, I'm coming back to you, Ace. But the thing that I keep telling myself, which 
I, it's so far, it's a little bit helpful. So I say to myself, even if the election happens and it's totally not what I want, there's a day after election day and the day after that and the day after that. That seems, it's, it seems so un, unthinkable, you know, but to me, anyway. But people's grandmothers used to say it's not the end of the world. Didn't they? How many people had a grandmother who says it's not the end of the world? That's a main thing. I, I wonder if I shouldn't call today's talk it's not the end of the world or it's too cryptic. What were you going to say, Ace? I have my own battle with worry. And I have a little catchphrase that I think we should So listen, thank you. Did you hear? He said, I could be a warrior. I am a warrior, he said. So I think to myself, I could be a warrior or a warrior. And I think that when, in fact, when we feel there's something we can do, we don't feel like trapped. You feel trapped by a worry. How many people worry a lot? Don't you feel trapped by the worry, like I could just put this worry down? It's a terrible feeling. That's very good. Thank you very much. I think feeling potent, you can do something. Confidence is good for you. We have two more meetings before we have the changing of the guard. Uh, I don't know if I like this. We can take another straw poll. I'm not so sure I like it if I'm here for four weeks and then Donald's here four weeks and then I'm here for four weeks. I liked it a little bit. I think I liked it better, more mixed up. How many people liked it more mixed up? How many people like it better this way? How many people don't know what they like? <laughs> All right, I'll have to figure that out with Donald. Um, if you didn't come in on time to hear the news that on the 17th, which is two weeks from today, you are welcome to bring a friend free. Spirit Rock is inviting you to bring a, bring a friend as our guest on that morning. So please come next week and then come the week after with your friend and uh, we could fill up the room and if you can possibly come to this retreat people are signing up for this three day weekend retreat I think it's going to be great so I hope you think about coming so what I am hoping for the next two weeks is to continue to talk about mindfulness it was spurred on by that article in the Shambhala Sun that said, listen, everything is mindfulness these days. Do you teach, how do you teach mindfulness? Do you teach it as a uh, technique to do different things better? Mindful, uh, mindful parenting, mindful gardening, mindful pregnancy, mindful eating. Or do you teach it as something else? And I said, I do both of those. But I think it's a something else that I want to teach about because I actually think it really is meant... Of course we should do all those things mindfully. There's a, um, a physical uh, therapy office on Sir Francis Drake just uh, around uh, the corner from where I live. And it says mindful physical therapy. And every time I ride by it, and I think, I hope so, you know. I, what, what's... The alternative is haphazard physical therapy, or I'll make it up as I go along physical therapy. So I'm extremely glad that it's mindful. But uh, on the other hand, 
I really think that mindfulness is about liberating our minds from all of the habits that keep it held captive, from the habits of the body to the habits of the stories that we tell ourselves, the habits of forgetting to uh, fill the mind with wholesome states, and that it has the potential by may I meet this moment fully, may I meet it as a friend, of really unearthing all of those things that in the sutta it has that wonderful line where it says everything that bars the door from the natural expression of compassion. That's what we're actually trying to do. We're trying to make ourselves over into totally compassionate, totally loving beings. That's a whole makeover. And that's a really big deal to me. So it's a little bit impassioned, more than my usual self, but that was fine. Anyway, I'm telling myself, may you all have a good week and uh, go forth, like the Buddha said, and be your best self to make a better world.
Stormy election season in Colorado. It's a very fraught election season yes, in Colorado.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.